Welcome to part two of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. Lucia Hulsether and I, Tina Pippen, are talking to Wayne Yang of the University of San Diego. In part two, he's going to talk about teacher training, the participatory action research he does with youth, being a provost at the University of San Diego at John Muir College, and then he's going to tell us about the world of the third university that's possible. So I'm going to uh, hook on to that because I find a lot of hope in your writing. And uh, you, you expose a lot of um, you know, depressing things. But as you mentioned about guilt, you know, that really reflects on the one with the power uh, and not on uh, you know, transforming initiatives. And so, um, you know, and your hope is in movement building and relationships. Uh, as you, you know, talk about the Indigenous Futures Lab, uh, your work with um, in schools of education, especially with teacher training. So I'd like to, to turn to that and your vision of teacher training in the 21st century, where it's being, um, uh, you know, teacher education programs are, are, are being abandoned uh, or they're ending, like at, at my small college. Um, we won't have an education department in, the, in two years from now. Uh, and so, um, and we interviewed Michael Apple, who talked about um, how uh, education departments have, you know, gone to um, teach for America or teach for Brazil or teach for India, et cetera. And so, um, could you talk about your vision for teacher preparation in the 21st century, what you see and, um, you know, the, the whiteness of, of teacher education and, you know, where you see teacher training headed? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. Um, so, I'm, to, to be totally honest, I'm not that great at teacher education. <laughs> you know, I used to be the person you, uh, they would assign, you know, uh, an apprentice teacher to in my classroom. And I'm always a teacher who would make them cry, you know? <laughs> um, so I've worked really hard to understand how hard it is to, to um, help teachers in their own learning. Um, I think that is a real craft. Um, and I, I think I was lucky to collaborate with Nina, Nini Hayes, Nini Visaya Hayes, who really, you know, she came up with this whole metaphor of like the train and the matrix, the movie, The Matrix, and, and, yeah. and, and trains, both the Underground Railroad trains and also trains that are like, you know, the trains of manifest destiny and, mm -hmm. and the coupling of teacher education in particular to high stakes testing, to, um, you know, to sort of these, these uh, racial projects of, of, um, of, of, um, with metrics of exclusion, right? Metrics that justify exclusion, you know, whether it's our, our students or our teachers, um, our teachers, um, teachers of color who, who the metrics say um, are not highly qualified teachers, <laughs> you know, the, the absurdity of that. So, um, so I guess just sort of nodding to the people who are actually doing that work first. Um, I, I think that um, the other thing that we never think about is like, it, I mean, it is a very sad thing when a when a school closes and a school of education closes. It 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 means something, you know. It means an era is coming to a, to close. Um, and teacher ed 
schools have been around over a hundred years, I guess, right? Um, and, but you know, it's interesting to think about that history, like with what was the original project, you know, of, of the common school and training teachers and hmm. was that that great of a project? You know, it, it, it was a great project, certainly, right? But, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't without problems. And, and no one thinks about the closing of a education school as, oh, we're finally free <laughs> of this, this project. <laughs> Um, and so, so I guess for me, um, oh, it's, thank you for asking about hope or talking about hope. Um, so, so I do write for, um, La Paperson, who I think of as an avatar and, um, and there's things that La Paperson can do that I can't do. And, and I think one of those things that La Paperson is allowed to do is hope. Um, I think sometimes people, even my own, um, comrades <laughs> will say like, in, when you're in a, in a struggle and you're. You're working really closely with people, collaborating closely with people. They're, they're your comrades, and some of them, I think, I feel would take issue with hope, right? Um, certain kinds of hope, and um, so La Paperson is able to hope, um, and unapologetically, I think. Um, yeah. And um, whereas I think I'm a little too afraid to be that hopeful. <laughs> so, so I, I think um, speaking from that point of view. Um, Teacher education, if we think of it as the closure or the end of it as an opportunity, you know, as, as shedding something that maybe isn't so useful anymore. Um, and that it's simply that the, the people who are really bought into neoliberalism have beat us to it. So I remember before I went to graduate school, the, the people who, um, I was, who were trying to convince me to go to grad school, um, they were also teachers. Um, they're actually quite famous now, which is kind of funny. It's uh, um, Ernest Morel and Jeff Duncan Andrade. They, we were all high school teachers together. And, and they're the ones who said, you need to go to grad school. But they were always talking about at that time, like how schools needed to be evaluated and, and look what they're doing. Look at these achievement gaps. We need a way to measure them. And then who comes up with that are you know, it's like high stakes testing, you know, so it's, and, and Pedro Noguera says that too. He's like, it's, it's the high stakes testing people from Texas who sort of beat us to the critique, right? Um, now where they took it is pretty, um, you know, uh, atrocious, but, but um, I think we used to always say things like, you know, schools need to be abolished, right? Um, and now we're in this weird position to feel like we're protecting schools because um, we see that the future the neoliberal future is far worse, right? Yeah. Um, but let's say we move away from that, back to the original idea that maybe schools do need to be abolished. Let's, let's just put that out there as a possible premise. Then the end of teacher ed, um, as sad as it is, um, is maybe there's a different future out there. And I, so one of the things I think about is how uh, a black teacher project, so M Misha Mosley, um, started Black Future, Black, the Black Teacher Project, which is to support, retain, recruit, and develop Black teachers. It's an amazing, amazing project. Um, you can find them online. They have these, these great programs. It's, it's not an academic project. And uh, I was lucky to be a little bit, a little part of that. And one of the weird things about Black Teacher Project is that we learned that teachers didn't want to be retained. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So it's like black teachers, they're saying, I don't want to stay in a profession for 30 years. <laughs> you know, I, I want to do six, seven, eight. I want to be good at it. I want to be great at it. Um, and maybe I want to do something else. And this is, you know, one of those things you don't want to hear, right? Because <laughs> <'Cause, 
because the whole project is we want you to stay in the profession. You know, black teachers are leaving the profession. This is a problem. And, and that's true. Um, but why do they have to stay? You know, like why, why do black teachers have to, have to, be, have to be shackled to this, this profession that's under attack for 30 years? And, and why can't they go and, um, I mean, this, these uh, new generations of, of people are working three or four careers. Like why can't they become screenwriters and mm -hmm. um, other things? Um, and uh, one of my closest friends um, from the, the years of um, East Oakland Community High School and Daphne's project, um, Katia Brown, you know, she always said she was an amazing teacher, English teacher, and she wanted to be a doctor, an MD, and had not taken any pre-med courses, you know, like organic chemistry. So she started going back to school, community college, and taking pre-med courses while teaching. And we were thinking, but she's an amazing teacher. Like, it's really sad that she's leaving the classroom. Well, eventually she goes to the Latin American School of Medicine in Cuba and does six years of med school in Spanish, you know? Um, and now she's in the Los Angeles area doing her dream, which is, you know, trying to found a clinic. Um, she's a doctor, right? That is not a loss, right? That is like an amazing gain. And so I, I do feel like um, maybe the new, the new future for teacher pedagogy is how do we help people um, with those transitions? Um, so so what, it, what would it mean to create a um, journalism program for teachers, educational journalism? Um, and maybe they would take those skills and reinvest them in their classroom, or maybe they would also eventually when they're ready to leave transition to something else. You know, what if we, what if we did stuff like that? So um, that's, that's the hopeful side of it for me. Yeah, yeah. I wanna make sure that we get a chance to talk about your um, participatory action research with, with young people. Um, and just like, this, this is a really simple question, but I'm curious about it. When you're doing this research, what's the first question you ask? your interlocutors. Wow. Um, so I, I want to just say I'm not a researcher first, um, uh, mostly because I, I'm not a great researcher. Like it takes a lot of time, right? Uh, scholarship, I'm, I'm a slow writer, a research project to do well takes a lot of thinking. And there's all these things I want to do and research isn't the fastest way to do them. So I, I think most of the things I do are not research projects. And then working with young people is one of those, right? So, um, which I do less of now. I mean, I, I work with college students, but I would say most of the young people I work with all along, it's never been a research project. Hmm. So doing a, a youth research project was um, both a pedagogical strategy, you know, so um, how do we do something really cool that is educational? And it's also a financial strategy, which was how do I use university money and funnel it towards young people? Hmm. Well, we need a research project. So, um, so I guess I, I'll start there. Um, so I don't know if we started with a research question. Um, I, I feel like, um, you know, uh, I, I just, there's people who do this so much better than I do. These uh, YPAR folks. Um, and um, I mean, Eve Tuck, I think, it does it a certain way. And there's a bunch of people who came out of the East Coast to do it a certain way, um, where they use things like, um, 
you know, photo voice and play, you know, they create, they design games and they really think through um, theory and, you know, Eve writes about desire. She thinks about desire with young people. Mm. My experience working with uh, Jeff Duncan Andrade was, was much more instrumentalized towards um, community organizing or political ends. So, so it was kind of like, let's create a project that we can educate, um, you know, policymakers about our community. And I think that's a different way of doing the work. I personally, from just a very personal viewpoint, always like to ask young people questions that um, sort of defy the research methodology. So like if you're going to do a bunch of surveys and you're going to, I don't know, um, do some kind of quantitative analysis <laughs> of these surveys, um, you know what, you kind of know what the outcome you want is often, you know, it's whether it's about a survey about encounters with the police, let's say, like, you know where that's going. Um, and that's important. But I'd like to ask questions that really get at how people um, imagine how they change their communities, like theories of change. And um, so one of the questions that I used to ask the young people, and then they would ask in their, to, when they were interviewing people um, in their businesses or on the streets or wherever, was what would you do with a million dollars, right? And it's not, a million dollars is like, it sounds like a lot of money when you're poor, but when you really think about it, it's not that much. You know, <laughs> It's like, you could buy a house, you might be able to fund yourself, um, you'd be secure, but you, you wouldn't be rich, right? You wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to use money to change the world. You would simply be funded. You would be free in that respect. And it's really fascinating what people would say, you know, what they would do with a million dollars. Um, and I think what people say reflects how they theorize how they will change the world. Mm. And, um, and I think it's an important question to ask because I feel like we should always be acting that way. You know, we should be acting like, what would you be doing if you had a million dollars? Like, would you still be teaching? Would you still be a professor? Um, would you still be opening a high school? Would you still be founding a nonprofit? And I've always found that I was able to say, I'd still be doing what I'm doing, you know? Um, so I, 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 and I feel like, um, maybe it's because I'm short-sighted, <laughs> you know, but it also, I think it's a good measure for me to, to see like, am I, am I pursuing um, a theory of change? Am I trying to enact a theory of change that makes sense to me right now? And if it doesn't, then I'm really in the wrong job, right? I'm really doing the wrong thing with my time. Mm -hmm. So um, to go back to the title of your book, A Third University is Possible. Um, I mean, is it? <laughs> Some days, I think the neoliberal train is, is you know, we've, we've got to get more people in the Underground Railroad movement, to use that, that metaphor for that, from that article. Um, we need more alternatives, and we need more people to movement build around those alternatives. So, um, I mean, you do have a vision for a third university. It's not utopian, as I understand. Um, so could you share more uh, about how you, you are, as a provost, are, are in the system in many ways, differently than those of us who are uh, teaching in the classroom. Um, so how does that whole power thing work for you? Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, just to speak on the provost thing first. Um, so I did take this job as a provost, but it's not like a provost at any other university. Um, Usually the provost at a university is the 
is the sort of second in command to the president or chancellor. Um, but here we have a college system. So we actually have seven colleges and it's a faculty administrative position where you get to um, be sort of the, the head person of an undergraduate college. It's actually a lot of fun. Um, and I get to work with staff and I get to work with students. Um, it, I, I see it as a nice, um, I see being department chair as a much harder work because you have to work with faculty. <laughs> Whereas like my work with faculty is sort of all um, opting in. Um, you know, uh, I, I get to choose to work with faculty, they can choose to work with me. Um, but having said that, I did take this position um, shortly after this book was coming out. And it was like, <laughs> it was this weird challenge where um, I, I would never have wanted that position. And I had to ask myself, you know, why am I afraid of it? Um, and there is this really amazing, um, one of the other provosts, Yvonne Evans, he's a, a black South African sociologist. Um, he's a bit uh, more senior to me and he is a, a militant and an activist. I mean, and he's a provost. Hmm. And I remember asking him, I, uh, you know, and he would, he would um, we don't do this as often anymore, but he'd take me out for coffee to sort of check in on me. And I would ask him what, you know, what is possible from this position? And he'd say, not a lot. You know, that's, that's amazing. But, but then he would say what he could do. And I really appreciate that, like both those answers, like not a lot, um, but this is what I can do. And he would name off all these amazing things. I mean, he, he takes students to like Zambia and he, um, you know, he does all this really neat stuff. Um, but so, so I think he made this position seem possible. Um, but I also feel like in any institution I've ever worked in, you always know who has the keys, right? So there's like custodial staff or there's like that student worker who happens to have the keys to everything. Um, when I first got to UC San Diego, all the students had keys to all the, the fleet, like all the cars and vans of the campus. They have since then changed the rule. So they would go um, drive all around California in these university cars. Um, and they were always for official business, but those, their official business, they always made into organizing events. So they go to Sacramento to lobby the um, state legislature. They would go meet with other student organizations. Um, and it was always above board, but it was also simultaneously underground. And I learned a lot from them. So this is like one of those positions, like wouldn't you like to have one of your homies in this position? You know, but no one wants to take it. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> If I have the opportunity to say no to it, who else has that opportunity? Um, so I think I took it as a sense of um, responsibility to the collective uh, or collectives who um, maybe have always wanted someone on an insider outsider there. Um, so in terms of a third university, I think the third university is always happening. Um, maybe it's happening right now. Maybe the three of us talking right now <laughs> is part of that. Um, and um, I think it is very practical, it's very pragmatic, it's very um, tactical, it's not pure, it's not utopian, it's not, um, it's not clean work. Um, but just as some examples, um, so our university has a very fraught relationship um, that we have earned with the Kumeyaay, and the Kumeyaay is, is um, the, uh, the, the, the nation, the indigenous nation here in San Diego and their traditional territories stretch all the way into Mexico. I mean, it is quite large. It's actually, 
our county has, um, I want to say 13 um, uh, federally recognized indigenous nations. So that's the largest of any county in the country. And the, and the Kumeyaay are here since time immemorial. So they weren't removed to another place. They were, um, they do have reservations. So they have been um, sort of concentrated and limited historically with their movement, but they're, they've, you know, they're, they're in a gen, an era of regeneration. So um, we, <laughs> under our chancellor's house is a burial ground. And, and of course they unearthed um, some ancestors there who are over 10,000 years old. And it's the oldest human remains in North America. And this stuff was not, you know, um, you know, they, they treated these ancestors as like just so many, so many bones and they put them in boxes and they shipped them here and there and they hid them in basements and, and wouldn't, wouldn't re repatriate them until I think it finally happened 2016, almost 30 years later. So, so we've earned a very bad relationship with, with the Kumeyaay. Um, so, and people are afraid of that relationship. You know, administrators here are afraid uh, because of the settler guilt. So who, who makes this happen? Are, are, um, it starts with these two students, leaders here, Alex, uh, Alex, Alexandra Harbert and Roy Velasquez. And they say they want to create an art piece um, and who do they find is this uh, sculptor, a local sculptor from the Santa Isabel um, Reservation, and that's um, Johnny Bear Contreras, right? So, so they get a Kumeyaay sculptor. And then, of course, people start getting really nervous, right? Because <laughs> they, they don't know, is this going to, we're going to get in hot water again. But, you know, they, Johnny Bear makes this remarkable um, piece called When the World Comes to Life, and he gifts it to the students um, facing the sunset on the cliffs of the you know, Pacific Ocean. And he's like, this is where the, um, the owls come to roost and the owls are, are wisdom bearers in, in our, our stories. And he, he tells many stories in, in the installation of this. And, and who receives this piece are students, um, leaders. Uh, you know, Black Student Union comes in force, uh, the LGBTQ, the Pac student orgs, the, you know, every, and I just think, you know, it's this moment of regenerating relations that have always existed among colonized peoples. Um, and who does that are these students. Um, but I'm also part of that because, um, you know, like, and their student fees are part of that because they, they find ways to fund this and um, I find ways to fund parts of it too. And so I, I do think that that is a type of third university work, yeah. right? Is, yeah. is, uh, that that creates possibilities. It creates something other than the settler didactic space. So with the occupation of, um, uh, well, the, the 30 meter telescope, which is uh, they're trying to build in Hawaii, mm -hmm. um, there is a Mauna Kea protectors group that met in San Diego and they met there. Like they met at the mural, the, the sculpture and um, and they held ceremony there with the Kumeyaay. And then they had a day of workshops and teach-ins. And so, so that's a third university, right? Um, but I do think it's possible. Yeah. Well, thank you for that story. Yeah. I feel okay. like um, this might be a poignant place to, to end on that note. Um, but Wayne, do you, do you have any, anything, other, anything else that is burning that you want to add? or anyone else have, have things to throw, throw out there? 
Um, I'm curious, like, what are you all reading right now? It could mm. be, it could be uh, Netflix too. It doesn't have to be an academic <laughs> book. <laughs> huh. uh, we know? just first um, Scott Myers Lipton at the University of San Jose uh, State um, about um, student activism and social action courses. So I'm reading the material on the Bonner Foundation site, but uh, that shows my pedagogical nerdiness, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think. Lucia, what about you? What am I reading? Well, in class yesterday, we just discussed a piece by Elaine Pena, who's at, she does American Studies at George Washington, about um, something called the Improved Order of Redmen, which is this group in the 19th century of like mostly white settlers in Laredo, Texas, who played Indian and celebrated George Washington. So we had a really interesting conversation over Zoom in class yesterday about um, about what it means and what, what cultural work is happening when, um, when white people make claims to a kind of indigeneity and what does that mean for sort of re, re, um, coding the land. Um, so that was, that's what I'm reading for school. Uh, I'm reading, I'm reading, um, In the Dream House. Anyone heard of this book by, um, Carmen Machado? She's a queer um, essayist, and it's a, it's a it's a memoir about abuse and intimate partner abuse in um, same sex partnerships. But it's like playing with genre form and um, fantasy as it as it does that, and I'm finding it difficult but good uh, quarantine reading. Any recs for us, Wayne? Yeah, we may all be reading about online teaching. <laughs> That's online right. Teaching. <laughs> yeah, I, I tracked down one article on uh, Paulo Freire. You know, what would what would Freire say about online teaching um, in the International Journal for Critical Pedagogy? Other than that, I'm uh, a, a little uh, over my head. I have to compile a for a, a working group I'm in we decided we're gonna all collectively read about, so we, everybody, work, this is the working group for globalization and culture at Yale. Um, we all work around a particular keyword every year and everybody does sort of a project around a term that we choose and this year it's order and control. And everybody is like deep into their own projects right now, um, but we decided to change course and do a week of reading about orders and orders of control around epidemics and virus outbreaks. So that's my project this afternoon is to get a reading list for everybody. Um, for me, um, I guess uh, since 2016, I've been thinking a lot about Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake. And I, I think that's the one that I, I just keep coming back to. Um, and, um, and certainly Dion Brand's poetry is heavily featured in there. Um, yeah. I, I think in terms of online stuff, I, I like the Black Land Project. Um, that's a website by Mistinget Smith. Well, it's more, more than a website, it's a, it's a whole project about Black relationships to land. And there's, the stories in there are really neat. Um, so I think the, the one that pops up right away is called Get Off My Property. And it's about um, this uh, Black person's relationship to these, these lands that they grew up on 
Um, and then one day they're, they're tromping around in the woods and someone starts yelling, get off my property. And I said, who's, you know, who's property? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but Mixing Guide also has this thing called the deck where you can shuffle. It's almost like shuffling cards and it will ask you a question every time you shuffle the cards. It's, it's really neat. Um, so, um, and uh, for fun, the first time I read a book in a long time for fun, not for academic things, uh, I just read a, a brand new book called The Book of Kane and Margaret. Kane is spelled like Kane, book of Kane Margaret. And it's actually, um, by, it's by Kik Araki Kawaguchi. And it's about um, all the, it's a bunch of stories. They all take place in um, the Gila um, internment camp during World War II. And every character, all these characters are called Kane and Margaret, but they're actually different characters. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's really fun. It's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's a gorgeous sort of um, one world over book. Um, it's it's not uh, it's not like a documentary of of that time, and then on my books to read that I haven't read um, is uh, Sadia Hartman's uh, relatively newer book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, where she talks about all these um, black women um, in the 20th century and sort of intimate uh, lives that are normally seen as uh, wayward. Um, so whether it's like partying or drinking or, you know, sex, <laughs> and I, I just think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. So um, I haven't read it yet, but that's on my list. All right. Both Sharp and Hartman's new books are uh, Pokemon, very powerful Pokemon cards in the debate world. Oh, my, no kidding. My collaborator, Timothy, and I will talk about how last, so the debate tournament, the year, it, this weekend would have been the big national, one of the big national debate tournaments. Um, last year around this time, we were, we were at, um, wait, it was, it, we were, so Minneapolis was where one of the final tournaments was, and there was another one in LA and it was right after Wayward Lives dropped and all of these teams came to the tournament saying, our argument is wayward. And so wayward is a shorthand for like all kinds of things about like enacting radical black queer futures um, through debate. I love how so, you say it dropped. I, I think it's- Oh yeah, it's like an album, like <laughs> the album dropped. Um, so when you drop an, ar- an article next, everybody is gonna, everybody is gonna read it. Um, yeah, this interview, in fact, uh, we there's like, something deep spiritual happening here because I bet somebody some enterprising debater is going to find this on the internet and say <laughs> Wayne Yang said we're using Pokemon cards. Anyway, these circulation yeah. it happens. The book, I'm going to say one more book recommendation because I've just been going to all the indie bookstore websites and sending it to all of my friends because I think everybody should read it, is The Mothers by Britt Bennett, if you all haven't read this. Set in Cal- it's in a Black community in Southern California, and it's um, about, it's about loss, memory, community, sexual politics. I'm just, I feel like I can't really describe it, but like reading the novel feels like getting a hug. Um, and it's a really, it's an amazing book. So I'm telling everybody to read it and sending it to people for their quarantines. Well, on climate change, I want to recommend the novel, <laughs> Weather. Weather, no, okay. Weather. I'm, right, I'm taking notes. Reviewed in the New York Times book review a few weeks ago. 
excellent writer. Okay, Wayne, thank you so right. much. Thank you thank so you. much. It was so nice meeting both of you in person or virtually, as it were. Virtually. But, um, I really enjoyed this. It's such a treat. Yes, yeah. for us too. For and us too. We'll meet in person. Yes. yes. All right, be well. You as well. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. The Nothing Never Happens team includes Aaliyah Harris, audio engineer, and China Wilson, producer. The Nothing Never Happens theme song and interstitial music is by Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is provided by Paul Myrie of the Wabash Center for Teaching, Religion, and Theology. Uh, the music for this Wayne Yang podcast is called Tweet Lament, and it's available on bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.